Hello, and welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bloomberg. Today, we're speaking with IMS strategy consultant, Dr. Clint Townsend, about the benefits of theme development, factors leading to nuclear verdicts, and the increase in these massive damage awards. Dr. Townsend specializes in designing and executing mock trials, focus groups, and community attitude surveys that guide early case strategy and development. His background in communication theory, research, and statistical analysis enable him to help clients gain successful outcomes. Clint, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here, Adam. I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion. All right. So I, I, first, I got to ask, Michigan State University, third generation Spartan. What was that like growing up with, with that in the household? I mean, you become pretty obsessed with one team, and I think obsessed is the right word. Um, I bleed green and white. There's been so many memories over the year, not only through when I was in college, but uh, before I went to college, going to Michigan State games with my dad. And, um, you know, it's it's great to be able to share something like that with, uh, with the entire family. And, um, you know, I, I can I will continue to be a Spartan until uh, my last day, <laughs> even when they're not so good. <laughs> Well, I'm a I'm a first generation horn frog, so okay. I understand how big of a deal football is. But any other sports uh, from uh, that time that you enjoy watching or, or going to see? Oh yeah, I mean, I I remember going to uh, the famous Izzo camp with Tom Izzo and uh, meeting the man himself, getting some some coaching wow. tips with my footwork and the like when I was I think in fifth grade. Um, so I, I've always kind of been a basketball lover to begin with, and they've had a good program obviously for a very long time. But um, you know, I, I'll watch the hockey, I'll watch lacrosse, I'll watch MSU's baseball, soccer teams. I mean, it, any any of the Spartans, I will cheer them on. That's awesome. Okay, so let's jump into it. Three degrees in communication. Um, uh, that's a lot of time and a lot of work. I, I read that you became interested in the law due to a project on the CSI effect. I'm wondering, could you tell us a little about that and then and what what intrigued you about that? Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky at Michigan State. They offered a specialty communication course called Communication in the Law, which you know dealt with a lot of the issues that I deal with today in my career, things like pretrial publicity, um, you know, witness credibility and things like that. And one of the subjects that we talked about was the CSI effect. And I was invited to do sort of a, a thesis project in that class. And I thought that was really interesting. I, I wasn't a huge CSI lover myself, but uh, I was curious for how jurors viewer viewership of something like CSI or other TV shows would impact their decisions in the courtroom. And um, it ended up being a really fun project. And it actually led me to um, eventually to a conference called uh, the American Society of Trial Consultants Conference, which I'm still a member of. And I know IMS is uh, a proud partner with them. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of history after that, but it was kind of a fun start into this career. So what was the first case you worked on? Not, I'm not naming names here, but what type of case was it? And what was your experience like? You know, I worked um, 
my very first cases were actually doing sort of social media work, um, sort of social media research on jurors during a jury selection. And I don't remember the exact first one. It was a lot of, a lot of different cases going on at once. But the, the first one that stood out as being, you know, kind of important work was uh, actually a civil rights case where it was, um, you know, a police brutality type case. And uh, it was really interesting just kind of delving into those issues and looking at the people who were eventually going to be making uh, decisions in that case. I mean, it was an important decision and an important verdict. And um, I, I think I really enjoyed becoming a little more immersed in the process, you know, really uh, focusing in on that. And um, I, I think that was one of the first cases, but I was I was eager for more variety. So as, as part of your work as a jury consultant, you, you often work early in cases, sometimes well before discovery is over, and, and oftentimes right when a case is filed. So why don't you describe the, the sorts of work you do early with trial teams to, to help focus them in a case? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the work that we do through uh, something like a mental mining can often illuminate things about a case that attorneys haven't really thought of as being all that important. And that's not to say that, you know, that the attorneys just weren't paying attention to it, but it's sort of offering a fresh perspective, offering a new set of eyes on their facts and trying to get into the heads of uh, of what jurors eventually might notice about their case, whether we're going to see it in research or whether we're going to see it at trial itself. Um, and when you do that early in a pro in the process, early in the trial process, that opens the door to a whole host of ways you can address certain issues, certain vulnerabilities, or otherwise that you may have. So you think about things like adding in an expert to address something that was raised in a mental mining. That it's sort of like we don't have anybody to instruct jurors on this specific issue. We need to we need to look into that. Uh, you can also imagine things like theme development, things like uh, preparing witnesses for depositions with themes in mind. Uh, those, those kinds of things can be super helpful. And then, you know, a lot of the clients that we're working with are contacting us with sort of a mediation in mind. They've, you know, they, they talk to us about their very first, um, you know, mediation in the case, the, the dates that are important that are coming up. And they might mention, oh, we've got a mediation coming in, coming in a couple months. A mental mining can be very valuable going into a mediation, having thought through, okay, here's how we want to structure our case at a macro level here's where our strengths lie, Here where our, here's where our vulnerabilities lie, and being able to go into a mediation with that information well salted down, well figured out, um, and really rigorously tested in some capacity can be a huge advantage for the attorneys because you feel more confident in your position, you feel as though you're, you're able to anticipate the other side's attacks, and you feel as though you've got this strong foundation for your case that uh, if the mediation isn't successful, that you feel good about it going forward and, and moving toward trial. What we've coined the term mental mining to mean is really an exhaustive session with the team, the trial team itself and one of our strategy consultants, often uh, in addition to a jury consultant or trial graphics uh, person, you know, really to dig into issues. The, the way I sort of visualize mental mining is uh, attorneys have often spent months, sometimes years, delving into the issues, really in the weeds on some of these cases. And they've sort of built up this structure of what they think the case is. Uh, what a mental mining can do 
is pull apart all those pieces, examine the individual parts, uh, look at how the witnesses fit together, look at how the facts fit together, and then rebuild something that in theory is stronger, it's more robust, it's well aware of the vulnerabilities and it, it addresses those vulnerabilities or shores them up. And it also leverages the strengths that you have. Oftentimes, uh, this one of the simplest things a mental mining session can do is identify a core strength of your case and figure out a way to thread it in throughout every theme, thread it in through all, all the witnesses and really make it a, a pillar of your case. And the reason that's valuable is if you go into mediation with that all figured out, again, you're stronger in your position. But even if you've just got that figured out right before trial, that leaves you with a stronger, uh, a stronger story, essentially, to tell the jurors. Can you discuss any, any high-profile cases that you've had recently where the jury research um, or, or any of this consulting that we're talking about um, theme development, mental mining, that those aspects were really critical to the outcome of the case. Sure. Yeah, we worked on uh, this one recent case where we did some theme development and actually uh, helped write the opening script for uh, for a big high profile case, high profile enough it was in newspapers and the like. And it's it's pretty cool to see the words that you you know the actual verbatim words that you and the team came up with together printed on the front page of the LA times, for instance, I mean, that's, that's, there's not much higher, uh, high than that. And, and seeing that and seeing not only that it resonated with the media, but you, you've got a good argument that it resonated with jurors. We ended up winning that case and we felt really good about it. Um, that that's great to see. So, you know, working with trial teams that are, are already really confident about their story. And it's just about what we're trying to bring is giving them the platform and giving them the words and just sort of refining things so that jurors can understand them and giving jurors repeatable things like uh, some of those lines that were printed uh, to be able to reiterate in deliberations. And again, just, just carry the deliberations for our side. Uh, we also had a recent uh, mental mining and research exercise that we did for a uh, a big trucking case in Texas that uh, the client came back to us afterward and said it was immensely valuable in getting the case to settle because they felt so confident in their position going into a mediation that they were basically holding a position that they wouldn't have felt as confident holding before. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they were they were astounded by some of the feedback they got from the jurors in both a good and a bad way. You know, they they said both good and bad things. But that feedback is is so important to have when you have sort of cases like that. They're a little bit unclear. You're not really sure what's going to happen, because, again, it gives you if nothing else, it's going to give you the confidence going into a mediation or a confidence going into trial that just accentuates your entire argument. So you, you made me think of something with transportation cases. I know in East Texas right now, there's kind of a, a venue and, and a few attorneys out there that have been getting these massive uh, damages awards. I, I, I guess the term right now is nuclear verdicts. Um, I noticed that your dissertation uh, was on the psychology of damage awards. So um, I know you and, and other IMS consultants have been monitoring the recent uh, upticks in this, but maybe talk a bit about what you're seeing with nuclear verdicts. 
Yeah, I mean, they have been making making headlines everywhere. Uh, Texas, sort of most notably, there was the charter spectrum verdict not that long ago that was originally for $7 billion and uh, recently reduced to just a, mil- a billion. I'm sorry, just a billion, which, uh, you know, a lot of money. Uh, there was another case in Georgia where uh, it was a rollover accident and Ford was being blamed and uh, the jury came back with a verdict of $1.7 billion. I mean, uh, it used to be that nuclear verdicts were considered something above 25 million. Nowadays, we're seeing them in the hundreds of millions and sometimes billions. It's it's a little scary uh, for a lot of attorneys to be seeing out there where uh, I think the most concerning thing is uh, certainly a lot of these have been in Texas. You know, we, we do a lot of work in Texas. A lot of the cases that I've worked on have been in Texas. And uh, there's certain venues that seem to be just a little bit more uh, inclined to result in those kinds of verdicts. But the thing that we're noticing now is there's a little bit more variability in it. You know, that that Ford case I just alluded to was in Georgia. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a case in Chicago where uh, the final verdict was $336 million against a, a gas plant. Uh, so these are these are happening in different venues. And certainly there are some uh, some parallels and some commonalities between these cases. There, there would have to be, otherwise the the awards wouldn't be that big. But uh, the the difference being, it just seems like they're popping up more often and in more uh, more locations. What do you think the common thread is with with these sorts of outcomes? You know, venue aside, maybe what's the you know what's the strategy uh, in these cases that these attorneys are using for such large amounts. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to think it's something going on with the jurors themselves, right? It can't just be something about these cases in particular because the cases are so different. I mean, one involves uh, a cable company where the the technician was the the person ultimately implicated in in the murder. Different one is sort of a, a product defect type of case where it's uh, a design in the car itself that uh, plaintiffs are going after. You're talking about very very different fact patterns here, and yet both of them resulting in billion dollar verdicts. So uh, the common thread there seems to be some emotional psycho- psychological uh, fact in the jurors where. Uh, typically, you only see big damages like that when there's this sense of emotional outrage from jurors, essentially that jurors have to get really angry or they have to get uh, minimally very frustrated with what a defendant is doing and feel as though the big number is going to send them a message of some kind, right? That uh, by awarding that huge verdict, that the company itself, the company in question here, but also the industry as a whole is going to take notice of what just happened in that case and sort of a, a warning sign that those companies need to be doing better. Otherwise, you could face this kind of verdict. And that's that seems to be what's happening here. There's certainly some commonalities in, mm-hmm. in terms of the plaintiff's approach, uh, but it seems to go beyond that. There's got to be something going on uh, in terms of juror psychology because you know, you alluded to my dissertation, which was on anchoring effects and this whole idea that uh, one of the foundational pieces of anchoring is if you ask for more, you get more money. Well, in these instances, uh, the jury actually came back with verdicts that were bigger than what the plaintiff's attorneys asked for. How does that happen? It's be- it's happening because the jurors are outraged. 
Yeah. So the, the plaintiff approach you're referring to is something that, you know, we've all heard for the last, what, five, seven, eight years, the reptile theory. So how do you see that factoring into these examples? Yeah, I think it's less reptile theory, which, you know, in my academic experience, reptile theory doesn't have any psychological or neuroscientific basis. Uh, instead, it's more about jurors' attitudes coming into these specific cases. What are the biases? What are the opinions? What are the beliefs that they're they're bringing into these cases when they start out? Uh, and I've actually given a series of talks about sort of the five factors that a plaintiff can exploit in order to get at these neutral uh, these nuclear verdicts. And I think that's really what the reptile theory is about: is getting at those five factors to to really drive those uh, giant verdicts and those five factors, and luckily these are sort of supported by those cases that I just talked about because they're all present in some capacity. The first one is just bad facts, you know, acknowledging the fact that your case has some bad facts. If you're on the defense side, that that there are just some bad things you cannot uh, work around or you cannot get out in MIL or uh, whatever it may be. Uh, the second fact is the company or the industry with a poor reputation or history. So you think to uh, the the charter spectrum case, cable companies are not all that well liked by most jurors. I, I don't think that's a stretch to say uh, most jurors have had at least one negative experience with a cable company. So that's not exactly a company that's going in with a great reputation or a great history in the eyes of the jurors. The third factor is a liberal venue. Obviously, uh, you're more likely to see these kinds of awards in venues that slant Democrat that uh, voted for, you know, if you look at the 2020 election data, generally speaking, they voted for Joe Biden at rates of 60, 70 percent or more. Uh, so the liberal venues tend to be a little bit more generous in terms of their uh, nuclear, ver in terms of the, the verdict outcomes and the like. Uh, the fourth factor is a compelling anchor. You know, obviously, it's important for the plaintiffs to ask for something. They need to give jurors Basically, I, I think of it as a starting point. Uh, an anchor is not the number that they're going to go with no matter what. It's a starting point for them to work on their deliberations uh, from. So, you know, when a when a plaintiff asks for $500 million and they're able to make a compelling case for why $500 million is a fair verdict in the in the case, whether it's through their experts, whether it's through, uh, you know, some model of here's everything that they've lost, whether it's through just making a compelling case. Uh, you know, there's an instance I can think of where we were working on a wrongful incarceration case where the compelling anchor was, this is the total amount of money, but that equals X amount of dollars for every day this man spent in prison for a crime he did not commit. That's a pretty compelling argument to make, right? If you're putting it in the in the light in the context of this is per day, this is what he he deserves. Uh, so that's the fourth factor. The fifth factor is a strong damages expert. You know, really having somebody who is not only credible but is able to teach damages to jurors. You know, jurors often feel sort of overwhelmed by things like a regression analysis or a cost factors analysis or all these statistical terms that they don't really understand what's going on. All they figure out is, well, it added up to this thing based on what this guy said. Uh, a really strong damages expert, one who can teach the jurors, who can simplify things and really come in and tell the jurors, this is how I show, basically you show your math. This is how I ended up there. That can be very effective. And when you have all five of those things together, 
that's where the conditions are ripe for this kind of verdict. These nuclear verdicts really happen when those five things fall into place and a plaintiff's attorney is basically sitting and ready to take advantage of those things and recognize those things in order to get a bigger verdict. Thank you to Dr. Clint Townsend for speaking with us today, and a special thanks to our listeners. At IMS, we're trusted to deliver consulting services to the most influential global law firms, early with pre-suit and investigation services, then in litigation during discovery, arbitration, and trial. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 20,000 cases and over 2,000 trials. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and join us next time on the IMS Insights Podcast.